What a thought. To stand before the throne faultless. Isn't that an amazing thing? Well, if you understand your sin, it's an amazing thing. <laughs> the fact that we can stand before him faultless, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross to pay for our sins. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we start this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just that, for what we just sang about, that we can stand before you faultless because of what Christ did. He being our cornerstone, Lord, that we can completely depend on him and on nothing that we do. Lord, I pray today as we look into your word, we would do as James says. We will look into it like a mirror. We will see things in our lives that we need to change. And we will walk out of here more and more conformed to the image of your son. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, uh, we're going to continue our study. We're in, uh, in Joshua. We'll be in Joshua chapter 7. And uh, as we continue our journey with, with Joshua, at this point of the story, we are at what we call the conquest phase. But we've gotten to the second part of the conquest phase, which was Ai. Remember, we've seen God do a great deed in, in Jericho, and he conquered, uh, helped the Israelites conquer Jericho. But then they moved on to Ai, and all of a sudden things didn't, uh, didn't go so well. In fact, 36 men died as they fleed from the small town of Ai right after de- defeating Jericho. Here's the structure of chapter 7, just to remember where we are, and we'll, we'll com- uh, complete this today. Uh, but the first one, we have the introduction which talks about Israel's sin and Achan's sin. Oftentimes, many people, as they study this, really focus only on Achan's sin, but the Bible is very clear in verse 1 that the children of Israel sinned and Achan sinned. So we find that in the introduction, and that really plays out in the rest of the chapter. Uh, verses 2 through 5, we see the story of Israel's sin. And then in verses uh, 16 through 26, we find the story of Achan's sin and the results of it. And right sandwiched in the middle, we have a conversation between Joshua and the Lord. Do you remember what, what Israel's sin was? Remember what it was? I heard it out there. I heard a few people whispering. Self-reliance. Yep, it was self-reliance. Remember with Jericho, what role did uh, the Ark of the Covenant play in the victory that God provided in Jericho? It was the central figure. In fact, they didn't really have to do anything. They listened to the Lord. They inquired of the Lord. He told them what to do, and they, and they followed it to a T. Not a great uh, strategy from a human perspective. March around the city for seven days. That, that doesn't seem like a great strategy from a human standpoint, but it is when you're following the Lord. Amen? And so the walls come down. And, uh, and we saw that. But then with Ai, did they inquire of the Lord? Not at all. In fact, they even said, why don't we send two or 3,000 people by themselves because we don't need everybody. Which shows that the reliance wasn't on God, but the reliance became on self. And so they left God completely out of, of the picture. We called this in one word, conceit. Conceit. Conceit is when we leave God out of the picture, but we think we can still handle things on our own. Thank you, God. We've got it covered from here. That's conceit. Then we come to the the middle of uh, the chapter in verses 6 through 15. And Joshua uh, speaks to God. And we talk about five temptations that we can oftentimes fall into when things don't go our own way. And then uh, two weeks ago, we talked about what God said back to him and about three different tools of sanctification uh, that, that God had provided. The first one being conviction. That God gave us conviction. It's a tool to help us in that sanctification process. The Lord convicts us. We realize that something we did is sin. 
Of course, Achan ignored that. And the second one was confrontation. Remember before God chastised Achan, he, he uh, gave an opportunity for the entire tribe of, or the, not the tribe, but the nation of Israel to start confronting each other. An entire day where they were supposed to purify themselves and ask each other, All right, did, was it you that did the sin? Was it you? Was it you? Confrontation. That's a gift from God, is it not? I didn't hear too many amens on that. Now, we don't like confrontation, do we? Anyone here like confrontation? All right. Uh, well, you know what? It's a gift from God because it keeps you from where you don't want to be. Amen? Of course, Achan, once again, didn't respond to that. And so then there was chastisement. God used public humiliation. And so God did it in a very public way in front of the entire nation of Israel. He told them that someone was involved in sin. Achan had an opportunity to respond he didn't. He hid his sin instead. And then he said, well, it's this tribe. And, and he, he separates that tribe. Again, Achan had an opportunity to respond. He didn't respond. Well, it's this clan out of that tribe. Again, nothing. Silence. Oh, and then it's this family. And out of that family, this man. And only when the finger was pointed directly at Achan did he respond. And only then. And so we see this conviction, confrontation, and chastisement. And then last week we saw the last one, condemnation. And uh, we begin to see that here. But how in the world did Achan get there? When you think about it, going through all of the tools that God gave him, and we're gonna, when we read about his, his condemnation last week, and we'll read about it again tonight or today, but we see this condemnation. How did he get there? So let's look at, look at this a little bit closer. And we're going to see a microscope version, a microscope understanding of the nature of sin today. We get into Joshua chapter 7, verse 20 and 21. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver underneath it. Here we see the natural progression of sin. We take a microscope, and, and in the last, really in the last moments of Achan's life, we see for the first moment real honesty coming out of him, coming out of his mouth. We see this in the last moments of his life. He begins to see sin the way God always saw his sin. And this is the progression that we find in here. Really, if we want to understand it, all we have to do is look at the verbs that he applied to himself when he was explaining what he had done. So let's look at verse 21. It says, when I, what's the first verb? When I saw. It all began with seeing. He saw a beautiful robe. Now, remember, where he had, had he spent the last 40 years? Yeah, in the desert, right? You typically don't, even if you had a nice garment in the desert, it's not going to be that way for long. I remember spending about four days in the desert, a desert that would be comparable in Joshua Tree Park down in, in uh, uh, Southern California. And what I had didn't look so clean after three or four days, as you can imagine, right? Here, they lived 40 years in the wilderness. He sees a beautiful garment and he wants it. And then he sees gold and silver and quite a bit of it. And it was right there, easy for the taking, because the Lord had brought down the walls, right? And, the, and they walked into Jericho, and he sees it, he saw it, and you can understand why he would want it, can't you? 
I mean, if you put yourself in his shoes or in his sandals, maybe, but if you put yourself in his position, wouldn't you have wanted, wouldn't you have seen that and at least thought, oh, it would be nice to have that. But God said, everything from Jericho, you're to leave, you're to dedicate that to the Lord. Don't take anything. Don't even take the location. You can't live there. You can't build a city there. Why? Because it's the principle of first fruits. You give that to the Lord. And so it belongs to him. And then as we do that, we're expressing our faith that he's going to continue to provide. But he saw. He saw a beautiful robe. He saw the silver. He saw the gold. But it doesn't stop there. What's the very next thing that he says in verse 21? When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. So it goes from seeing to coveting. What does the word covet mean? And if you look at the word itself, it actually means to want something that is not intended for you. So as a, for a believer, it's to desire something, it's to want something that God did not intend for you. See, God has designed everything uh, for us, everything that we should have. And in the moment that we start saying, I want something else, that's coveting. We're saying, Lord, what you told me I need to be content isn't really correct. And so we have to correct the Lord and say, no, actually what I need to be content is that over there, which you did not provide for me. And anytime you find yourself correcting God, that's not a good place to be in. Amen? That's not where we should be, but that's coveting. It's, it's a willful decision to dwell on something that you know doesn't belong to you. The, and uh, the root of it is really discontentment. I remember when I was working with, uh, and I spoke several times at a, a youth group, and it was an international youth group in Costa Rica. So you had English-speaking and Spanish-speaking people, a lot of missionary kids, and talking with some of them. And, and um, there were two brothers. Uh, one was named Benji, and the other one, I'll just call him Paul for now. But, um, but as I was talking to them, you have to understand that these two brothers were very, very different. Came from the same parents, but very different. Benji was a natural athlete. He was very social. In fact, in, in soccer, he was, he was a great soccer player. And by the way, a great soccer player in Costa Rica, Rica means you're an awesome soccer player in a U.S. standard. You understand that, right? Because when I played soccer there, they would divvy up the gringos as we were the disadvantages on everybody's team, right? That's just the way soccer is, really, outside of the U.S. And he was a great soccer player. He was very social. He was a, a good-looking guy. Uh, and everyone wanted to be him or be around him. And he was a nice guy. And then there was his brother, who we'll call Paul. Paul was kind of, he was very tall, kind of lanky. He just hadn't quite grown into his body yet, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and he had huge feet and, and huge hands, and he was starting to grow into that. And he was not athletic at all. He would stumble across his words many times, and he wouldn't talk to girls at all, right? Just, he was that way. He... he he, he really struggled. And I remember uh, when, we, when I spoke at a camp and he came up to me afterwards and was talking to me and he said, my brother does this, he does that, he does this. He's so good at everything. He said, and now I come home after school and I study. And if I get a B, I'm happy. If I get a C, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm just striving not to get D's. He says, but my brother Benji comes home, he studies for five minutes and he gets A's, straight A's. He says, Andy's better looking, Andy's better at sports, Andy's, what, what is, what's that mean for me? What was he doing? He was coveting. 
Why? Because he's saying, what God has given me isn't enough for me. I want something that God has given to someone else. Does that make sense? And so as I sat and talked with him and we began to talk for a while and, and helped him see that, you know what, God has a plan for all of us. God does not love Benji more than you. In fact, God's plan for you might be bigger than his plan for Benji. Uh, I didn't know this at the time, but it was. Benji uh, is no longer with us. Uh, Benji died at a young age uh, while Paul is still alive. And, and, uh, and I said, but you know what? Maybe what God needs for you to learn, for you to accomplish everything that God has for you, isn't a quick memory. And maybe it's not a social skill. Maybe it's not some of those things. Maybe it's the, the art of hard work, right? How many of you had to study hard to get good grades, right? Did God use that in your life? Yeah. And so, so at the moment when he began to refocus and say, wait a minute, if I focus on what God has given me, then I, I lose focusing on other people and on what, what God's given them. And he was a much happier person. Does that make sense? Um, and so we see things that other people have or that maybe that God has intended for other people and we, we covet it. We want something that God has said no. And that's what coveting is really all about. After that, uh, if we look at verse 21, about halfway through, he says, I coveted them and took them. And this is where we have the, the next level, the act. The act of fulfilling the desire, your covetous desire. The act of, of coveting. You, 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 uh, you, you actually act on that coveting. This is sin. Um, when you act on that desire. And have you noticed something, too, that at each level, if we could deal with the sin at that level, it, how much easier it would be? I mean, imagine if Achan caught himself coveting and said, ooh, I should not be coveting those things. And he repented right then and there. How much easier that would have been on everybody, wouldn't it? And, but here he acts. He acts on that sin. And the last thing he does, verse, 20, uh, verse 21 and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver underneath it. The last thing, the last step of it is hiding. Hiding our sin. You know, if we look at Achan's sin, I think we have to realize that this is the nature of sin in general. Not just of one sin. This is the nature of all sin. In fact, if you go to the, where the Bible first begins to teach us the doctrine of sin... We would go to Genesis chapter 3. So keep a finger here in Joshua uh, chapter 7. But let's, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. First book of the Bible, third chapter. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. I want to see if the natural progression of sin is even similar there to what we find in the life of Achan. Genesis 3 verse 6. So when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. First time sin entered into the world, what do we find? We find the exact same thing that we find in Joshua chapter 7. In fact, we find uh, she saw the tree was good for food, 
and that it was pleasant to the eyes. It was attractive. Is sin attractive? It sure is. If it weren't attractive, it wouldn't make good bait. But the, the devil tries to bait us in with something that is attractive. She saw it. It looked attractive. That's step one. Then what does the Bible say next? It says she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. Now what's that talking about? Well, if you go back just a few verses, you find the serpent who is telling her, if you, if you eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will be knowledgeable, just like God, you'll be knowledgeable of good and evil. Was he lying? Yes and no. Would you know what evil is? Yes. Would you know what good is? Yes. But that's the worst way to know what evil is, by experiencing it. Amen? Experience is the worst teacher. I know people say experience is the best teacher. Experience is the worst teacher, right? It would be so much better to say, ooh, that's a bad move. I'm not going to do that. Right? Would you like to experience uh, uh, that the bridge is out when you're driving down the road? Or would you rather see the sign? Right? I would rather see the sign. Right? Okay, bridge is out. Okay, if I have to see someone else experience it, okay, but I'm not going to follow him. Right? Experience is a horrible teacher in, in that sense of the in that sense of the word. But she saw that it was de- desirable to make one wise. If she experienced it, if she sinned, she would now experience evil, and she would yes, and that's as the devil said, be knowledgeable of both good and evil. Up to that point, was she knowledgeable of good? Yeah. In fact, the Bible said every day, after every day of creation, God finishes the day by saying, this is good. This is good. Until you get to day six when he created man, he says, no, this is very good. And they had knowledge of good. It was that evil part. And so she saw that, and she wanted it. She wanted the knowledge that at this point only belonged to whom? To God. What is that? It's coveting. It's coveting. She saw it was pleasant to the eyes. She coveted it. She wanted that, that knowledge that came with the disobedience. And what does the Bible go on to say from there? It says, she took of its fruit and she ate. And then she gave some to her husband and he also ate. They acted on that coveting. Step three. And immediately what did they do after that happened? They hid. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Up to that point, they had been walking with him, talking with him, in perfect communion with their God. And sin had destroyed that. Had destroyed it. It There was a juicy worm on the end of that hook, and she went for it, and she got the hook. Right? It's hiding. Hiding your sin. And it's interesting to me, too. It says that immediately they both realized they were naked. You know, when the Bible created Adam and Eve, there's a little statement about their nudity as well. It says that they were both naked, man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Nudity was not a shameful thing until sin entered into the world. The very moment sin enters into the world, in the same verse, what does it say? They realized they were naked and they were both ashamed. Nakedness becomes shameful. Why? Because sin exists. And so I just want to say there's a, little, there's a theology of nudity in the Bible. And, and men, this is true of women too, but I'm going to talk to the men specifically. You have no business looking at the nudity of anyone besides your spouse. That's the only exception we find in Scripture. 
because it's not sinful there, right? You have no business. So I just want to make sure we understand that. But even that was an act of hiding. They found, they found leaves, they covered themselves because of their shamefulness. And then they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This is the nature of sin. This is the way sin works. Last week we talked about, and I won't read, read this story, but last week we talked about the sin of David. And remember in 2 Samuel 11, he sent every male in the palace, he sent them away. And what, is, what does 2 Samuel 11 say? When he was on the roof of his palace, said, from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. What is that? That's sin. So David sent and inquired about the woman. In other words, he was not happy. He was already married, remember. He was not happy with what God had given him. He wanted someone else to add to that. What is that? Coveting. Then what does it go on? Uh, then David took her and she came to him and he lay with her. He acted on, the, on his coveting and he committed adultery. Making things even that much worse. But he doesn't stop there. Do you remember what he did after that? He hid his sin. In fact, at first he tried to hide his sin from Uriah. He said, Uriah, come home. Spend a weekend with your wife and uh, take, take a break from the battlefield. Why did he do that? To be nice to Uriah? No. So that when Uriah comes home later on, finds out that his wife is pregnant, then he can say, oh, it must have been from that weekend that I was home. But Uriah would not do that. It wouldn't have been too hard to figure out, too, because remember David sent every male in the palace away. I think Uriah would have figured out who did it, right? But then when Uriah refused to do that, he thought, uh-oh, man, the people of Israel are going to find out. So what did he do? He sent Uriah to the front lines of battle, told, told them to withdraw from him, to leave him alone so that he would be killed. In a sense, David killed Uriah. Why? To hide his sin from Israel. The last verse of chapter 11 says, but the thing David did was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. Lord still saw what was going on. That's hiding. David tried to hide his sin, and it never, ever works. Well, today, as we look and uh, let's go back to Joshua 7, we also see what happens when we let things get to that level. What happens when we, we see things, we covet them, we, we commit the sin, and then we decide to hide the sin? What happens uh, when, when we let things get to that level. Let's look at verses uh, 22 through 26. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in the tent, with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all, the, all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones there, uh, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Wow. Is that strong? <coughs> Finally, we see, we saw conviction. We saw confrontation. We saw chastisement. And now we see condemnation. And we see that take place, this condemnation. 
And we, what we also find here is something very interesting that tells us what happens when we let things go to that level of hiding our sin. We find it. Because remember in chapter 3 of Joshua, we had what we called standing stone. Do you remember that? Here we find the second standing stone in Joshua. I want to compare uh, them to you for a second. In Joshua, actually chapter 4, Joshua chapter 4, they took stones out of the Jordan River as they crossed the river to make a, what they call standing stones as a memorial to the Lord from the middle of the Jordan. Remember that? And what was that for? What was the purpose? The purpose of that was to remember that it is really God who provides the victory. So that as future generations would pass by that, they would say, hey, what's this about? Oh, you know what? Those stones came right out of the middle of the Jordan. That's where God took us. So that they could keep our focus on God. Now we have the second standing stone in the book of Joshua, created in an entirely different way. The second one is what we find here in Joshua chapter 7, where they stoned the entire family and everything that belonged to Achan and his family. And the purpose is to remember what happens when we forget God. What happens when we leave God out of the, the equation? What happens when we become self-reliant? Condemnation is what waits. We see these two. If I were to put it in one word, I think the word I would use would be trouble. That's what happens when we let sin get all the way to the level of hiding it. Trouble. In fact, there's a play on words here. I like puns. I'll be honest. So anyone who knows me well knows I like puns. Right? In fact, I used one a couple weeks ago and I said, uh, what did Aiken say? Remember that? What did Aiken, or what Aiken's wife say when Aiken returned to the tent after stealing the devoted things? She said, oh my, Aiken back. Right? All right. You know what? I, I feel justified when I read this because there's a pun in here as well. So God likes puns too. Right? So, because there's actually a pun in here. You don't see it at first if you're, if you're, uh, if you're reading it in English. But if you read it in Hebrew, it, it, there's a pun going on here. Because, in fact, what we find is that the word Achor, the valley of Achor, you know what Achor means? Trouble. Right? It means trouble. You know what the word Achan means? Troubler, right? And so you could really look at Joshua 7.25 and you could read it this way. The troubler troubled us, so now God is going to trouble the troubler in the valley of trouble. <laughs> that's, that's, that's verse 7.25, the Dave Grave version, right? So, but, but that's what, it's, what it all means. And so, so God, in his, in his way, he's using a pun here. And, uh, and puns kind of get our, our attention. In fact, when the Grand Rapids Press had a, uh, a little competition to see who could come up with the best pun. They would give $1,000 to the winner of whoever came up with that. So I took 10 of my best puns, and I sent them in, hoping that one of them would win me $1,000. But unfortunately, no pun intended. <laughs> oh, come on, that was good. You can laugh a little bit. You can have fun in church, right? So God uses this pun to get their attention. Why? To, to let them know, you know what? This is the result of what happens. This is what happens when you when you ignore all of the tools of sanctification that God has given you, and you ignore your conviction, you suppress that, and then people confront you, and you don't listen to them, and then God chastises you, and you say, I don't care. And so finally God has to condemn you. This is what happens. The trouble comes. And sin always leads to trouble. So as we kind of finish out this chapter, and we look at, the, at how things work, what we find that Achan's sin was actually very similar to the sin of Israel. God was using Achan as an example to correct all of, it, all of the Israelites. 
Because his sin was also a sin of self-reliance. Why do I say that? Well, God had promised them all of the spoils once they get past Jericho. And here, for the first moment, Achan's saying, you know what, I'm sick of the 40 years in the desert. I want to I do this on my own. I'm going to get my own. I see it. I'm going to just take it. I'm not going to wait on God. What we're going to find out, if he had waited just till chapter 8, first few verses, he would have had the spoils. Not of Jericho, but of Ai. God has things in store. He has beautiful things in store for us if we wait on him. Amen? But it was self-reliance. And also, he left God out of the equation. Really, from start to finish. From the time that he coveted it, from the time that he took it, he's saying, it doesn't matter what God wants for me, it's what I know I need for myself. And then when it comes to the, to the chastisement, and God is doing this in a very public way, oh man, there's no way God can know it was me. Oh, he chose my tribe, but still, oh, he can't know. Oh, he chose my clan? My family? Ooh, man. Uh-oh. He chose me. <laughs> Too late. Right? That was the, the thinking process for, for Achan. It was leaving God out. But where the Israelites were guilty of conceit, he was guilty of cowardice. See, the Israelites were guilty of conceit because they said, we can go without God and we can still win this victory. That's conceit. Achan, on the other hand, is more in the cowardice side of, oh, I have to take care of myself because I don't know if God can win any more victories. I don't know what he's going to do. So, oh, here it is. I have to provide for myself. I have to make ends meet myself. It's still self-reliance, but it's cowardice. When God has called us to be courageous, where we're not depending on us, we put God back into the equation, and we're not self-reliant, we're reliant on him. We don't leave God out of the equation. He is the equation then we can have courage because we know whatever happens to me, that's part of God's plan. So I can do it. And we, we trust in God's plan. We know it's good for us. Even if it includes our death, it's okay. We're all going to die. I want to die when God wants me to die. I don't want to try and extend that one day. Right? It would be a horrible day if I could because God's plan is always best. Well, I don't want us to, to just talk about sin and say this is this is the, the downward spiral of sin that we're all doomed to. Because are we doomed to follow that path? I just want to share with us, as we close today, I want to share with us what the Bible says that we can do at each of these levels. Because how many of us have ever been there, hidden our sins? Yeah, if we're honest, I think that all of us have gone through all four of these levels. But I want to take a look at what the Bible says we could do. So the first one is see What can we do? Guard your soul. Let me explain that for a moment. Is seeing something a sin? I mean, is, it, is seeing something that is attractive a sin? No, really, that's, that part isn't a sin. At the same time, is there such thing as common sense? Like maybe not putting ourselves in a situation where we know we're going to see things that will tempt us? Right? That's what I mean by guarding your soul. In Proverbs uh, chapter 22, verse 5, we read this. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. What does it mean to guard your soul? Say, I know me. I know my soul. I know who I am. I know what my weaknesses are. I have to guard against those weaknesses. And not all of us have the same weaknesses, do we? So we have to know ourselves and say, I, I have to guard against my weaknesses. 
And we have to predict thorns and snares and say, I have to stay far away from those things. Does that make sense? I, I, I have friends who have a history of alcohol abuse. And, and so they have to stay away from any opportunity. You know, for me, I can go to Applebee's. I'm not even tempted to order an alcoholic drink. I'll be honest. I'm, it's not even temptation for me. That's not my temptation. Do I have other temptations? Yes, I do. Right? So I have to know myself and say, okay, I can go to Applebee's, but I, I'm not going to go there with a friend who's struggling with alcohol addiction. Does that also make sense? And so we have to guard our soul. We have to look for things that could become a snare to us, could become a trap to us, and say, I'm going to stay away from those things because I know myself. I'm going to guard my soul. I'm going to stay away from snares, thorns. Does that make sense too? So yes, it's not a sin to see something that's attractive, but we can also avoid a lot of temptations just by having some common sense guarding our soul. And that works a lot of the time. It works a lot of the time. You know what doesn't work? Legalism. In fact, I remember in chapel one time, uh, uh, there was a, a, a speaker who said, you know, it's not a sin to look the first time, it's a sin to look the second time. And, you know, because if you happen to see something, okay, you saw something. That's not a sin. And his point was well taken. If you understand what he's getting at, he was, I, don't, I don't blame what, what the speaker was saying. But I do remember when someone tried to apply it in a legalistic manner. It was one of my college, uh, my college mates. We were out. I forgot where we were at. But there, someone had put a poster of an immodestly dressed woman, very immodestly dressed woman. And I saw him standing there just looking at it. And I said to him, hey, man, what are you doing? You know, you're starting to be a pastor. What are you, what, what are you doing looking at that? And he said, well... It's a sin to look the second time, so I want my first look to last, to last as long as I can. Hey, that's legalism right there. A lot of people throw a lot of other meanings to the word legalism, but that's legalism. It's when we take a rule and we ignore the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is lust, right? So lust is sin. And so if it causes you to lust, then turn your head, right? Get out of there. And uh, so... Legalism does not work, but you know what guarding your soul does? It works many times. You just keep yourself out of the situations. Um, the, the second one was coveting. What do you do when you find yourself coveting? In simple words, see the snare. See the snare. The word snare just means trap. See, sin is a trap. In Proverbs 5.22, it says, His own iniquities entrap the wicked man. And he is caught in the cords of his sin. If you understand that sin is a trap, then you'll be less attracted to it in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. If we understand that it's a trap, it's, it's, it's like a fish who sees the worm and goes after the worm and then and maybe a pull too early. I'm not a great fisherman, so if I'm, using, if I'm not using the analogy properly, forgive me. But, but pull too early and, and the fish gets away and it's realized, oh, there's a hook there. You can put that, that bait right back down there and the fish is is going to be either more cautious or just leave it alone, right? Why? Because if, if it knows that there's a hook in the, in, the, in the bait, it's not so attractive anymore. And so if we understand that sin is a trap, or I like the way Ephesians 4 puts it, verses 20 and uh, following, it says, but you have not so learned Christ. 
If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former, former conduct the old man which grows corrupt, according to what? Deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you, that, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So we have this true righteousness and holiness is contrasted to what? Deceitful desires, deceitful lusts. What does it mean to be deceitful? It means it deceives you. It's not rocket science, right? In other words, you lust it, you desire it, but it won't give you what it promises. That's the nature of sin. And if you find yourself coveting something, you have to realize this is a trap. It's deceitful, and even if I try to indulge myself in this sin, it might give me uh, pleasure for the short term, but it will not give me long-term pleasure. That's the nature of sin. Or in Ecclesiastes 7.26, says, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Sin is attractive. Of course it is. Satan, do you think Satan's smart? Yeah, of course he is. He's smart. I also like the way Romans 6 puts it. Paul said, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. If we understand where it leads us, we're not going to go there. So, guard your soul when you see, when, so that you don't see things. But when you do see things and you find yourself coveting, see the snare behind it. See the snare that's behind it. I want to give an example. I'm going to use pornography just because I know that in our culture, uh, the, the number of men that are addicted to pornography is, is astounding. I went to a church planters conference and they had taken a, a poll. These are church planters and seven out of ten from the, from the year prior said that they were addicted to pornography. If seven out of ten church planters were, what does that mean for the average person, right? So I'm going to use this as an example, but I want you to see that this is a principle that applies to men and women alike in any type of sin. But how many of us would agree that pornography is wrong? Okay, about a third of us? Come on, you can raise your hand. Of course we do. Every single person here would say, I could go person by person, I'm sure that you would say, you know what, pornography is wrong. So what does the world do? It packages it in a way that it might not come across as something so bad. Does that, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I'm going to give an example. Um, this, is, this is just a poster for Lord of the Rings. No, I'm not going to preach against Lord of the Rings. So. But here is Lord of the Rings, written by a person with a Judeo-Christian ethic. Yeah, it's not intended to be a biblical analogy, and I'm not going to push it to mean anything more than it does. But, but the themes are Christian. The, the ethics of it are Christian and became very popular. So to catch people who are attracted to this, this uh, type of thing, what does the world come up with? Here's one. Game of Thrones. I'm hoping you haven't seen it. But it, the, I remember from the commercials, it kind of seemed like the same kind of thing. I read the other day um, on, I forgot the name of that website, but what was the name of that website? The, where you can read about it. Plugged in? Yeah, plugged in. Uh, there's another one called Kids in Mind, which is another good one. But just reading in black and white the stuff that they put on this show, guess what? This is 
pornography. It's pornography with a plot, but it's pornography. It's what it is. I could read to you, but I will not. Just reading to you should, should make us blush. It's pornography with a plot. So if you like Lord of the Rings, why not try Game of Thrones? Let's see, what the, see what Satan's doing. Oh, but you could like it for the right, for the right, other reasons. You can like it for the plot. You can like it for the action. You could like it. For, it's pornography. And and so what's happened from this point on is that really you 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 choose your genre of entertainment. No matter what your genre of entertainment is, they're going to come up with something and they're going to fit pornography in there. Uh, no matter what your choice of entertainment might be, they're all over the place, are they not? But it brings us to the simple point that pornography with a plot is still pornography. Now, again, I'm picking on the guys. I know, and I'm sorry, guys. But you know there's pornography for women, too? They call it daytime television. Right? See, men are more visually stimulated, so it's a lot easier to talk about it that way. But, but daytime television, how about uh, romance novels? I'm not saying any ro- novel that has romance in it, but, but I will tell you, the majority of... Romance novels, the majority of, of uh, daytime television is designed to teach you to be discontent with what God's given you. You can have a doctor who makes tons of money who still sometime, somehow finds a way to spend the majority of his time thinking about how he can please you. Right? It's not realistic. But it causes you to be discontent. What is that? It's coveting. It's coveting. And... Uh, with, whether it's a plot, whether, no matter what the package it's in, it's sin, is it not? Well, that's, that's coveting. What we, we do is coveting, we see the snare. We see the snare behind it. Don't get fooled by it. Now, what do we do, though, if we find ourselves actually in the act of sin? Well, even though coveting is a sin, but acting out that coveting part of, of sin, what do we do? One word, simple. Confess. When you think about it, confession is the exact opposite of hiding. They're antonyms, aren't they? Hiding is when you say, oh, I don't want people to know, so I'm not going to confess. I'm going to hide it. Oh, and if someone looks like they can get a peek in, oh, then I'm going to cover that up too, right? Because I don't want people to see the real me because we're ashamed of our sin. Confession is the exact opposite of it. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The best weapon we have against sin is confession. Think about that. Now, yeah, Jesus paid for our sins, and so that's, that's the, best, the best way to deal with it as far as salvation is concerned, but the best weapon we have in the sanctification process is confession of sin. And when we confess it, it's just something about putting it out there Saying, this is it, Lord, I agree with you. That's what confession is. Lord, I agree with you. This is wrong. Help me get over this. Help me never to do this again. Help me not to return to this. And he's faithful. And he's just. To forgive you and to cleanse you from it. And then the last one, hiding. What do you do if you find yourself, and you, you might even be in there today, and you come saying, Dave, if everyone knew the sins that I was involved in right now, that I haven't been telling anyone about, I've been hiding them. Maybe that's you today. Here's what I say. I say, remember who sees it all. Remember who sees everything. What was the last line in 2 Samuel 11 after David did all he could do to hide his sin from Israel? 
says, but the thing that David did was displeasing in the eyes of Yahweh, the eyes of the Lord. Guess what? You're not hiding your sin from everyone. God sees it all. Remember who sees it all. Isaiah 29, 15 says, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? What does God say to the person who's hiding their sin? Woe to you. Is that conviction language? No. Is that confrontation language? No. Is that chastisement language? No. That's condemnation language right there. Woe to you. And so if you're at that, that stage right now and you're saying, Dave, Pastor Dave, I'm, I'm hiding some sins. Be careful. Don't walk outside these doors without confessing those sins. I'm going to give us an opportunity in a, in a moment where you can just you can confess those sins and then we can have the positive side of this whole thing. First John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. You might say, but Pastor Dave, what I've done is ugly. You don't have to tell me what you've done. You have to tell God what you've done, right? You can come before, before the Lord. It might be a small thing. It might be a big thing. It might, I don't care what it is. Confess it to the Lord and he'll forgive you. You might have to confess it to people. If, you confess it, uh, if you've done something against someone, you might have to confess it to them too, right? But confess it and God has forgiveness available to you. Remember what we said at the very beginning of the service? Because of what we sang? We can stand before the throne of God guiltless, faultless. Again, it has nothing to do with what sins you've been doing so far. It's what you're willing to give to the Lord and what you say, no, I want to hang on to this. Don't hang on to it. See the snare. Guard your souls. And live a changed life. Let's bow our heads. And it's, as we have our, our heads bowed, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. First question, how far down the line do you typically go before you deal with your sin? Have you been guarding your own soul or have you been allowing yourself to get into positions or get into places where you know the temptations are going to be there? What snares do you need to remove from your life? And maybe you haven't been just contemplating some sins, but maybe you've been involved in them, so I ask you, when you do sin, are you, do you confess it or do you hide it? And the last question from whom do you think you're hiding your sins? From whom do you think you're hiding your sins? Because you're not hiding them from God. God already knows your heart. And so as, as we sing in just a few moments, I want to give you an opportunity. If the Lord's dealing with you in one way or another, saying the, the Lord's dealing with me, I'm going to invite you to come forward. You don't have to come talk to me. It's between you and God. You can come anywhere along front and just pray to the Lord. Say, Lord, I confess these sins. But don't stop there. Thank him for the forgiveness that he gives you. And walk out of here knowing that you have a clean slate with God. I want to say something too. I know that in a group this size, there, there are probably some who have come in today that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Those sins are on your account. And everything we've talked about today is helping the believer deal with sin in their life. But if you've never had your sins forgiven, 
I have great news for you. You can come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. What that means is He saves you from your sins so that you can spend eternity in heaven. You can walk out of here today knowing 100% sure that you're on your way to heaven and that God will not look upon your sins. If that is you, I, I, I would ask you to come and talk to me. If you're dealing with any kind of sin, whatever God's dealing with in your life, just come forward. But if that's you and you're not sure that your sins are forgiven to begin with, then come directly to me. Come talk to me and I'll send you to someone who can show you from God's word how you can have that assurance before you walk out today. Let's stand together now as we close in prayer and we'll sing a song.